Doug Keck, and welcome to a special on-location bookmark from Napa with Father Robert Spitzer on his latest book entitled Science, Reason, and Faith, Discovering the Bible by our friends at OSV, naturally available through the EWTN Religious Catalog. And once again, it's always great to be with you in person here, especially doing a book interview, which is kind of where it all began when we first started working together. That's right. right. We were doing That's book absolutely right? correct. So this is uh, wonderful. And of course, uh, just starting my writing career when we first met as well. Was that really about the beginning when you were first? Yeah, well, yeah, because I was just, uh, you know, finishing up my uh, right. uh, doctoral studies. In the now, what was your, I remember the first thing I remember trying to read. It was some, what was your doctoral thesis or whatever oh, yeah, was it that, on? Yeah, you didn't want that one. That was the one on time theory. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was pretty complicated. The, the theory I got was going to, I didn't have enough time to figure out what you were writing. About. <laughs> but I think that, that was really what it was. So let, let's talk about the idea. What is the idea of the science, reason, and the faith, discovering the Bible? How, why is it important for that to be overlaid into scripture? Well, you know, one of the big questions that a lot of our younger people have, and one of the primary reasons why they're leaving the faith is because they don't understand the Bible. Mm -hmm. They don't know the purpose of the Bible. And they think, oh my gosh, you know, if this Bible really represents what religion believes, count me out. And so we're seeing a huge number of kids leaving, not just you know, biblically based religion, we're seeing them leave faith in God altogether because they think, uh, you know, do they really believe that the, the world was created in, in, in uh, you know, six days and that God rested on the seventh day and mm -hmm. so forth and so on. And they begin to look at these things. They, they take the primeval narratives and they think that the Christian church interprets them right. as, as if they were, you know, like serious scientific material. And so I just decided I've just got to answer the four big questions that these kids have. Number one, they just think there is a conflict between faith and uh, science as it, uh, you Which know. Which you've dealt with in so many other books and on the show right. on a regular basis. Right? That's right. I don't need to talk about the primeval narratives necessarily right. in Genesis, or I don't talk necessarily about, um, you know, the, uh, you know, Noah's Ark or something mm -hmm. of that nature. I don't talk about evolution, um, you know, with respect to the Bible. I do talk about evolution uh, per se, right. absolutely. But uh, so all these things, I, I try to, that's one of the things, you know, the kids read, uh, you know, the first few chapters of Genesis and, you know, half of them are walking out the door. Right. And then the second thing that's going on is a lot of the kids look at certain things that they see in the Bible and, uh, you know, one of them, for example. Especially in the Old Testament. Right? In the Old Testament. It's not in the New Testament. It's really the Old Testament. It's really the Old Testament. Moses says, you know, okay, you got to wipe out. Uh, all of these people, you know, when you get there, I mean, men, women, and children, and, and, you know, these kids are going, well, wait a minute, genocide's wrong, and yeah. uh, we, we know that, so how, how can this be in the Bible? Right. And so, you know, they, they don't have any uh, hermeneutic to, to look at moral development in the Bible yet. So that's, uh, that's another uh, huge problem. Uh, a third problem that the kids have is, uh, frankly, with some of the miracles. So mm -hmm. they look at the, you telling me that uh, Jonah got swallowed by the whale for three days and uh, burped him out. I don't believe it. Mm -hmm. Are you telling me, you know, uh, Azariah and Mishael and, and Daniel and, uh, uh, you know, were there in the fiery furnace, uh, you know, and uh, 
you know, they, 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 they didn't get harmed, you know, I'm not so sure about that. Right. And so you have to have a really important uh, discussion about miracles, which miracles are absolutely right. uh, uh, certifiably historically true and which ones were written with the literary genre, for example. And Jonah's not written as, a, as history. Mm. Jonah is written as a prophetic story mm. uh, called Haggadah or a kind of Haggadic Midrash. And his audience uh, uh, would have known oh, that. Oh, understood that. that. Yeah, but our kids don't understand that and they right. think that the Bible intends this as historical or something. Right. So you, you got to bring that to bear and then you also have to bring to bear, uh, you know, um, uh, other, uh, you know, problems, you know, concerned with prophecy and things of that nature. Science and reason can tell us much about how to observe the world, kind of like in the last mm -hmm. book, but revelation alone, seen through the eyes of faith, can tell us why and how, in that way, the world exists. The objective of scriptures to re reveal sacred truths needed for salvation, while the objectives of science is quite different. Is that because we confuse what each one is trying to that, accomplish? Mm -hmm. That's correct. And Pope Pius XII, uh, way back in 1942, in a, uh, in a very important encyclical called Divino Aflante Spiritu, basically made that distinction right. for us. So he basically said, look, you know, sacred scripture is meant uh, to give us sacred truths that we really need for salvation. It's not to describe uh, physical science. It's not to describe an empirical, uh, you know, mathematical uh, explanatory um, uh, you know, method for uh, discerning, um, uh, you know, the, the physical universe, right. what the physical uh, universe consists in. That's the role of science. Now, uh, you know, it doesn't, you know, whether science discerns that the universe is 13.8 right. billion years old or 13.7 billion years old, this is not going to affect our faith. Mm -hmm. And and so we, we don't want to turn a merely physical, uh, observational, scientific kind of a truth, you don't want to make it into a sacred truth that's in conflict with the Bible. Right. Similarly, when the biblical author is talking about, for example, um, the, the, the six days of creation and the seventh day, you know, God rested. When he's talking about that, he's not giving, uh, attempting to give mm. uh, you know, uh, an empirical, mathematical, uh, scientific explanation uh, of the physical universe. He's giving us a sacred truth we need for our salvation because he is arguing not with the scientists. There was no science in 600 BC. Mm. So that's that's not it. So what's he, he talking about? Well, there's all these rival uh, right. myths that come from all of these cultures uh, around uh, Canaan and within Canaan too, uh, you know, before the Israelites took it over. And th there are many gods instead of right. one God, but that's necessary for salvation. Uh, the sea God, the mountain, mountain God and every other kind of what the Bible would call a uh, creature, mm. you know, they're not uh, creators, they're not gods in themselves, but uh, the biblical author, he's got to make a distinction here. There isn't any sea God. There's just one God and the sea is the creation of the one God. Right. And <clears throat> similar things like <clears throat> human beings are just cannon fodder for the gods. Right, that kind of a thing would be <clears throat> more the, right. the pagan religions and myths around. Whereas the biblical author has to straighten it out and say, no, no, human beings are made in the image and likeness of God.
Right, a far superior approach. You say, as we shall see, seemingly irreconcilable differences between these two pursuits come more from a misunderstanding than reality. Most of them are attributable, as you were saying, to the fallacy of making scripture do science and science interpret divine revelation. Exactly, and um, uh, I think, you know, um, the Catholic Church has always kind of averted that um, throughout its history even. Uh, this is before 1942 and Divino Spiritu. And the reason that it did was we always had a co-participative notion of inspiration. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> there are very few uh, even, like uh, Thomas Aquinas certainly believed that the biblical author had something to do with the actual product that he was writing. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of our, uh, some of our good Protestant brethren mm -hmm. Uh, actually don't have that view. They, they think that God actually speaks <clears throat> to the biblical author. Right, almost like a dictating yeah, dictation. That's right. It's called the dictation theory of inspiration. Right, exactly. Now you go into and you deal with a series of questions, mm -hmm. uh, first off on the Old Testament and then later in dealing with the New Testament. Mm -hmm. But in the Old Testament where some of the more interesting questions actually come up as you alluded to earlier, the idea is mm -hmm. uh, how can original sin, I thought there was in the Old Testament, and its consequences be reconciled with the scientific view of creation. Yeah, that's um, a couple of different things uh, are, are at, um, you know, co seeming conflict here. I mean, the, the first thing is, um, you know, in the theological doctrine, um, there is uh, one Adam and one Eve. We call it monogenism or monogenism. Um, and uh, monogenism really holds that there is one first man, one first woman where, um, you know, there seems to be, uh, you know, a huge hereditary line uh, to our genetic ancestors. And there is a huge hereditary line. Mm -hmm. But um, the one thing that people are forgetting about, right, is that God gives a soul uh, in order for us to get our cognitional ideas, our, our abstract ideas. Uh, God has to give us a soul uh, to get predicative notions, and I talk about this at length and the science of it. Mm -hmm. So this soul is, you know, I, I would say that, you know, when about 65,000 years ago, when uh, we see the advancements of human beings in technology, uh, in geography, in aesthetics, that's uh, beauty, in religion especially too, uh, you know, in the uh, uh, morality, uh, in a variety of other uh, areas, all of a sudden, human beings are just blasting ahead mm -hmm. of any kind of uh, hominid ancestor. And so you have to think to yourself, what in the world happened there? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and they call it the great leap forward right. because there's just no explanation for it from the vantage point of a physical process. We suddenly become categorically different. So let's call that couple ensouled Adam and Eve. So um, we don't have to worry whether we had a gazillion other ancestors. God only gave two of them a soul. And by the way, uh, the current uh, data seems to indicate that this um, soul, what we call, um, you know, mm -hmm. syntactically higher, uh, significant and hierarchical language, uh, which only human beings have, uh, that seems to have come in also 65,000 mm -hmm. uh, years ago. Uh, but it doesn't seem to have come in from a physical process. Indeed, I show that it can't really come from a physical process because it uh, predication requires abstract ideas. So uh, what is is left over is mm -hmm. just um, uh, God having to give that soul to to these people, and that's where they start. And as Berwick and Chomsky say, um, but it looks like we only have one real biological ancestor. 
who made the transition first. And that begins to show either a first man or a first couple that has a soul. And so monogenism uh, turns out to be okay. Then you say, well, wait a minute, uh, did death really come into the world? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, physical death or physical suffering come into the world? Of course, the theory of evolution says, okay, the, uh, the earth is 4.6 billion years old. Uh, I don't dispute that for a single second. I think the evidence for that is uh, overwhelming. I also think that the evidence for having what we would call uh, a proto um, uh, uh, carotenal, um, you know, uh, uh, structures that uh, precede uh, single-celled organisms uh, go back probably 3.9 uh, billion years. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, uh, under the circumstances, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, what are you going to do? At that, that juncture, of course, death came into the world. There's right. all kinds of fossils of organisms and plants and everything else that go back way, way, way before 60,000 years ago or right. our genetic ancestors 200,000 years ago. So what would you say to somebody who'd say, well, why did God do it that way? My, it seems like he wasted a lot of time to get us to this point. He could have mm -hmm. jump-started it a lot faster, no? Well, you know, um, all time is a, a single uh, moment in God, wow. so... Uh, the waste of time <laughs> might be from our point of view. Right. It certainly isn't from God's point of view. <laughs> okay. okay, what is your <laughs> very good? Now you also you also talk and mentioned this earlier, and I want to. Is there development in the moral teaching of the Old Testament? And again, mm -hmm. why did it have to be? Why did there need to be a moral development? Yeah, it goes back to the old scholastic adage, right? Quid quid recipiter est recipiter, in modo recipientis. In other words, whatever is received, received in the manner of the receiver. So you know. What you're basically dealing, as Aquinas recognized a long time ago, hey, you're in a warrior society, right? Or let's go to, back to the patriarchs, right? The patriarchs don't have any revelation that told them uh, that God was, you know, um, uh, not just, uh, you know, the highest uh, God in the pantheon, but uh, the patriarchs did think that of their uh, God, El, uh, right? But uh, the idea of God. Um, you know, being monotheistic in the mosaic sense, that had not uh, come about yet. Mm -hmm. uh, similarly, um, the patriarchs, uh, let's face it, you could have multiple uh, killings to avenge yourself of a single killing. Mm -hmm. So uh, we see that in Cain, right? Uh, I'll avenge Cain seven times mm -hmm. for anybody who t lays a finger on him. And uh, now Moses comes along and Moses says, no, no, you can't have this unlimited number of, you know, um, uh, kind of uh, vengeance. Right. Uh, you have to have an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So you can clearly see now this uh, equality of punishment, mm -hmm. uh, injustice, uh, or just punishment for a crime committed. So if somebody kills your brother, you can't go out and kill the whole town. And of course, in some of the patriarchal narratives, we read some of right with those and that's where it scandalizes a lot of younger people absolutely so um, and you have the heresy based on well the old testament was kind of this bad god and then there's kind of a nice god or something changed that's right that's right or, and you know you and throw out the old testament and you just base everything on the new testament that's right that's right but now rotzinger uh, cardinal uh, well at that time uh, wasn't cardinal rotzinger mm -hmm. yet um, but uh, he was a very good uh, theologian uh yes Franz rotzinger and uh, he kind of makes a, a really brilliant distinction. He says, you know, you have to take every Old Testament revelation and you have to divide it into two parts. Uh, you know, there's what he calls the central core of the message, 
which has to be consistent. That's the inerrant part of the revelation. That has to be consistent mm -hmm. with Jesus Christ. You can't have the central core of a message in the Old Testament fundamentally contradicting um, something uh, that Jesus said in the New Testament. Okay. Uh, so that so there's a central core, but that's consistent, always has to be consistent with Jesus. Then you have what he calls the outer husk, right? And he, what he means by that is that the form of the expression mm -hmm. that, you know, this biblical author uses right. to reveal this central core of the message. That is very temporally conditioned. It's conditioned by time, it's conditioned by culture, it's conditioned by the limitations of the biblical author uh, who's using that image and so forth and so on. Now, if, you, if, if you're in a warrior culture or a nomadic warrior culture, like say in the uh, patristic, uh, I mean in the patriarchal period, then uh, pretty much um, you can see that uh, they're going to say, you know, you can't tolerate anybody, you know, uh, killing one of your relatives, you got to get even. You got to get even. Because if you don't do that, they're going to kill more they're of gonna your relatives. They're going to kill more of us. They're going to look at us as weak. Right. So that kind of a culture, naturally, they the wrapping the husk, uh, as uh, you know, the right. the skin of the fruit, as it were, um, the form of the expression is temporally conditioned and it's not inerrant. But the central core of the right. uh, so then of course Rosinger says well wait a minute you know well how do we always know which is part of the central core and which is the stuff that's temporally conditioned and he says at the end of the day no group of theologian no group of exegetes no group of historical scholars is ever going to be able to do this mm -hmm. because we all got biases we right. all are ignorant of you know uh, huge amounts of the truth we all have uh, you know um, sort of our own personal hermeneutics. Mm -hmm. You just can't do it. He says, there's only one way, the church. Your Christ will have to designate, a, you know, fundamentally an interpretive uh, source that's going to say, this is part of Jesus Christ's uh, teaching. This is not. Mm -hmm. And they're going to have to make the distinction. And that's why even Ratzinger, as he's making this distinction between the, you know, the um, external or um, uh, expression of the, right. uh, of the revelation versus the core of the revelation, he's making a case for the church all the while. He's saying, you'll never be able to do this because, uh, you know, um, if you don't have a commission or an authority mm -hmm. uh, that's given by Christ. So, uh, if you're going to do that, you're basically going to have to um, right. also, um, uh, you know, have a church that has the authority to do this. Otherwise, you're going right. to have a thousand different denominations in a hundred years. Yeah, that and, sounds and familiar, right? That sounds that's, pretty familiar. That's where we are, and that's why people have to yeah. be concerned about themselves when they get upset about things maybe happening in the church and not throwing the baby out with the bath. Yeah, absolutely. As they say, moving into the New Testament quickly in the last few minutes of the program, mm -hmm. yeah, one of the things is, and this you hear on and off is, you know, Jesus is wonderful, but he never really claimed to be divine. Yeah, but he did claim to be divine. Mm -hmm. And the evidence for that is overwhelming. I mean, first of all, here comes Jesus and he starts doing miracles by his own power. He never appeals to God, right? He says when he raises the, uh, the, the widow's son, um, you know, young man, I say to you, ego lego, that's a very Jesus expression, by the way, when you put in the, the, uh, the pronoun mm -hmm. uh, along with the verb, because you don't need it in Greek. So, because uh, they, you know, they uh, conjugate. And so, uh, uh, ego lego, I say to you, rise. I, I say to you, rise. Not, dear Heavenly Father, please help this uh, child to rise. The power comes from within Jesus to raise the dead. The same thing with that little uh, girl, the, the, the daughter of Jairus, right? You know, Talitha Kaum, little girl, 
I say to you, right, arise. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, you, you see this, you know, when Jesus orders the demons, he doesn't, uh, you know, do this as a mediator of God's power. The power comes from within him. Get out of the man. And the demon leaves. Uh, and of course, the demon knows, right? I know who you are. You're the son of God. But, you, you, you know, right. so Jesus, first of all, he is absolutely aware of who he is uh, just in the fact that he has this power within himself. But more than that, he's grown up with his mother who has told him the circumstances around uh, his conception. Mm -hmm. He's grown up, uh, you know, uh, having a relationship with God unparalleled. I mean, you know, nobody in the world could have, not even Mary herself right. could have anything uh, remotely similar to what Jesus uh, had. And so you, you, you put that uh, also into the mix. So Jesus knows, but then he has his ways of hinting, you know, at his divinity. The first thing uh, he he doesn't want to come out uh, completely except among his uh, disciples and apostles where he does come out very explicitly and declare his divinity. Mm -hmm. But in, in, when he's around the Pharisees and, 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 and the Sadducees, he's got to be very careful uh, that he's not going to claim something for which they could accuse him of blasphemy and then, of course, try to, right. uh, as they say, put a real fast end to his public ministry. So Jesus is cagey. He says, he calls himself instead of son of God, he says, the son of man does this and the son of man does that. But of course, what is he referring to? He's referring to Daniel 7:13 and following. Mm -hmm. And what happens to be in that chapter? That this eschatological son of man is going to come on the thrones. He is a pre-existent. So he's pre-existent with God. And he's going to come down with the angels of God, not only to be the judge, he is going to be given the kingdoms of the world, right? He's going to be, uh, you know, the, the one that will be, as it were, not just king of this world, but king uh, of all of us, mm -hmm. even into the next world. So Jesus, you know, very craftily chooses this and, uh, you know, as his, as his title. And uh, son of man, of course, could just mean, you know, man. Mm. But it also has that, uh, it could mean that Ezekiel sort of man. Mm -hmm. It can also mean Daniel's eschatological son of man. And as it turns out, during Jesus' trial, he reveals which one he's been talking about, right? right. When the priest says, are you the one, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus says, yes, and you shall see the son of man coming on the clouds with the angels. And, you know, he gives right. the Daniel 7. Connection right there. Yeah, right. Exactly. And just then it's the, the connection. He also, of course, changes Torah. Who can do that but God, mm -hmm. right? You know, uh, I mean, he's going. Right. You know, you're going to tell me not to to that you can do these miracles right. on the Sabbath. What gives you the authority? What do you think? Right. You know, and so uh, again, the blasphemy charge comes rolling out, but it doesn't. You know, Jesus hasn't said uh, yet to these authorities he's God, right. Right. and finally because his time hadn't come yet. Yeah, but right. then when you see that uh, Q logion, which we just had in the scriptures, um, you know that. Uh, uh, where Jesus uh, says, you know, to his, he's praying, he starts with the right. prayer to his father, you know, Lord, I give you thanks. Father, I give you thanks uh, for what you have revealed, uh, hidden from the learned and clever you have revealed to the mirrors of children. Yes, Heavenly Father, you have graciously willed it so. Then listen to this. 
Everything has been given over to me by my Father. So what you're talking about is everything on heaven and earth, the whole of the revelation, uh, that can only be revealed uh, to someone who is divine, shares the Father's divinity. And if you didn't figure that out already, then he goes to the second part, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wishes to reveal him. Well, that knowing means a complete interior knowing. And so, of course, it means it, it, uh, 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 an equality in right. the relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father, uh, excuse me, the Son knows the Father as the Father knows the Son. There is Jesus' divine, um, you know, uh, uh, divinity right. revealed uh, not only as, you know, divine power or nature, but the divine personhood right. uh, that he has, and of course, the divine um, nature that he shares with the Father is having that personhood. And so that uh, right. uh, becomes very, very uh, uh, clear uh, there and several other passages. Right, where it's there. And also, as you were indicating, the, the apostles always did it in Jesus' name, where exactly. he did it in, in his own name, like you said. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. So we're just about out of time. What, so what are you working on now? Well, um, I've got uh, Science at the Doorstep to Christ. It's already written, wow. and it's coming out, and uh, uh, that has all the interesting stuff about the Shroud of Turin, the Eucharistic miracles, all the new evidence, uh, the Marian miracles, mm -hmm. uh, uh, among many other things. Right. So that's uh, a really, uh, I think, a good one. I'm also doing a Science, Reason, and Faith Study Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, again, with OSV. And uh, my first one's going to be for the RSVCE, and uh, my second one will be for the new. Uh, um, so, do you write? Uh, are you working on projects simultaneously a little bit, or do you tend to be linear in the way you do? No, no, I'm. Uh, I do. Uh, I'm not. I'm no Thomas Aquinas who can do seven projects okay, at the okay. same time, but I can do two or three. <laughs> oh, okay, we'll leave it at that. Right. Father Robert Spitzer, our guest and a great friend, his latest work, Science, Reason, and Faith: Discovering the Bible available from OSV through the EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com for all things Catholic. I'm Doug Keck from Napa, special bookmark on location. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thanks.